Welcome to the Data Leadership Lessons Podcast. I'm your host, Anthony Algman. Data is everywhere in our businesses, and it takes leadership to make the most of it. We bring you the people, stories, and lessons to help you become a data leader. We've partnered with Dataversity to provide listeners with 20% off your first training center purchase with promo code AlgmanDL. Go to dataleadershiptraining.com to learn more. Today, on episode 91, we welcome back Doug Laney. Doug is a well-known thought leader on data and analytics strategy. He is the originator of the field of infonomics and is the author of the best-selling book on that topic, and has a new book called Data Juice, 101 Stories of How Organizations Are Squeezing Value from Available Data Assets. Doug is also the Data and Analytics Strategy Innovation Fellow with the consultancy West Monroe. Doug, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Anthony. Great to be with you again. So for any of the audience that wasn't here the last time you were on, would you just give them a little bit more on what you're all about and kind of what your what your career has been uh, up till now? Yeah, so I guess like a lot of us, you know, I started in the big eight or six or four, depending on how, how old you are. Uh, great, great training ground. Uh, went off into the expert systems world for a while and then got uh, dragged by a, a colleague into this thing called data warehousing, a company formed by uh, Bill Inman, who's known as the father of the data warehouse concept, uh, the company called Prism Solutions, which is now a part of IBM. But um, yeah, so kind of got into the world of data warehousing and business intelligence that way. Uh, while we were at Prism, we developed the first uh, industry uh, methodology for managing data warehouse projects, which I think IBM still uses or sells today. And um, and then while I was there, uh, I started presenting at conferences and doing a little bit of writing and kind of got noticed by Gartner. And then Gartner invited me to, to join up um, and uh, spent about 12 years at Gartner um, helping to, to uh, form the, the chief data officer research and advisory practice while I was there. And um, um, I actually left for a while and came back. But uh, when I came back to, to Gartner, uh, they offered me the opportunity to write and publish the book Infonomics, which um, I had proposed to them. So Doug has been on the show before, and, and we were we were joking uh, before we started recording that it seems like it was just a month ago, and we lo I looked back, and it's been 40 episodes ago. It's nearly a year ago yeah. that you were on the show before, and man, I just couldn't believe it. It right. felt like forever that it took to get you onto the show, and so it's it's right. been quite a while, but for anyone who wants more of Doug's background and we kind of talk about the mm -hmm. Gartner days and talk a lot about what he's done in his career, yeah. that's episode 52 so go look back in the archives episode right, 52 right. you'll find more um about doug so rather than go through and, all and the background again. i didn't say that i guess i'd be remiss sorry if i didn't yeah. say you know from gardner i decided rather than continue to speak and and, and uh, advise clients 30 minutes at a time on on right. how to manage and monetize and measure data as an actual asset uh, i joined west monroe which oddly was formed by some ex anderson folks so i've kind of come full circle a bit. Yeah, well, and, and I, you know, in my own career, I've, I've gone between, you know, corporate jobs and consulting jobs and, you know, writing and speaking mm -hmm. and, and all of that. And and I find that the more I do one, the more I get pulled back to the other one. So it's it's kind of cool to see you uh, with uh, yeah. West Monroe and doing some of the, the consulting side of things as well, because that's mm -hmm. also where you sharpen your sword. That's where you continue to, to get these kinds of um, opportunities. And we'll actually talk more about that as we talk about mm -hmm. the way your book is created, because it's from that kind of world that you get so many of these these great stories so anyway 
Doug's background, more content, episode fifty. Episode fifty-two, um, but for this episode, and and I was fortunate enough to to be able to to read and and um, provide uh, kind of a testimonial or a referral for for Doug's book, uh, Data Juice. And I, it's quite honestly, like it blew me away when I read it. I loved reading it. It was so much interesting information it was actually and i don't know if this has ever been said about a, a data book before but it was a page turner it was like i wanted to read more and it was just great and so um i i wanted to have doug on on this episode to be able to talk about that and i think where we should start is first just where did the inspiration for this book and and the title data juice where where did that come from this is this is amazing uh, well, because the phonomics was a very erudite um, title, so I, I, I kind of swung the pendulum the other direction and <laughs> wanted to, it to be um, more more approachable, right? Hmm. Um, there's a lot of theory in infonomics about how data um, works as an actual economic asset and, and hmm. details about how to manage and monetize and measure data, including data evaluation formulas and so forth. But with data juice, it's really more about the examples and, and inspiring business leaders and data and technology leaders to to do more with their data. Maybe not just inspire them, but also maybe shame them a little bit into into doing more with their their data. Now, it, when I first joined uh, Gartner or rejoined Gartner, um, they said, you know, you're the big you're the big data expert. Um, I, I actually was a lot of your listeners may may know I'm the, the guy who came up with the three V's of Big data, right? The velocity, variety, and 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 um, velocity, volume, velocity, and variety of data. So I, I remember it myself. Um, and so it, the questions from clients turned quickly from what is big data to how do we do big data to what do we do with all this big data now that we have it. And so I started collecting real world stories on on how organizations are generating real value from from data. And uh, a dozen stories turned into 50 stories, turned into nearly 500 stories. Um, and so I sprinkled a few of them throughout Infonomics uh, in an illustrative way. But clients and colleagues and others like, like you kind of prompted me to, to do more. So I had this library of, of stories and decided to you know, put them into a, into a book that, that people could reference. So um, unlike Infonomics, which... I think it's more of a page turner. I, I think Data Juice is really more of a reference book. I mean, I, I'm glad you like, you know, reading it one story <laughs> after another, and, and and maybe that's how many people will will approach it. But the way I've laid it out, and we'll talk about this in a bit, uh, mm -hmm. is really more as a as a reference book. For for me, it was it was kind of like the the. MBA in a box or like the, the, cause the, it's all case studies. It's all these things where it's like, I want more, I want more. And it's, it's like almost potato chips because it was addictive. And it was like, the, it was like the TikTok where you want to swipe to the next one. Right. And, and it's like, they were short enough there. You're like, Oh, one more. It's, it's, it's another few minutes and you just keep going. Right. And so that's, that was really the thing that stood out to me. But what I also, <laughs> I you know, when I thought about the way I was interacting with that book is that I would always read the story and then I would think about my own experiences and how what that story was about related to something that I'd also experienced. So it was always just kind of a, a reminder 
reminder of mm-hmm. things that I too had experienced and that mm-hmm. I could kind of filter through my own lens. And that's one thing that I, I found very like to your point about the the whole nature of data juice. It is approachable. It is something that anybody can read. It's not super technical. It's not deep in the weeds. It's really about how do you connect yeah. all this data stuff to things that really matter to the business. And and yeah. the other thing was that it's really it the the each of these stories comes from different people and and so they're different experiences they're they're not just the sole view of one author but what i liked is that you not only have these stories from other people but then you say hey this is what i kind of take away myself from this which provides another perspective to it and here are some of the things that you might want to think about in terms of this particular use case and and i liked that and i also really loved the hashtags, like the hashtags and the tagging. I was like, it's just updating the book format for a more contemporary time. I thought it was brilliant. Yeah, I wanted to like be one of the cool kids, you know, with hashtags. You know? so, um, That's right. But yeah, back to the technology, you know, I really did downplay the technology in the stories. It's really about the idea, right? It's, you know, doing great things with data is really about the, the ideas. The technologies will come and go and they'll shift and you know, by the time some of these stories are published or by the time you read them, the technologies behind them will have morphed into something else or been replaced by something else. So I really did kind of kind of downplay the technologies. Um, and so the focus was really on, on what did they do with data and um, and how how did it benefit? So each story is really laid out in a common, common approachable way. You know, what was, who is the organization? A little bit about their background. What challenge did they have or opportunity did they see? what kind of data that they collect, what kind of analytics was applied, and then what were the actual business benefits, measurable business benefits achieved. Now, most of the stories have some kind of dollar value or euro mm-hmm. value associated with them. Um, others have other kinds of you know, metrics, but um, most of them, the vast majority will have some kind of hard, hard metric. Um, and, and yeah, so you also mentioned the expert uh, analyses behind mm-hmm. each story, right? So. Each story, I started to write an analysis for each story, uh, kind of suggesting a little bit of a follow-on, what jumped out at me and um, what I might do next. And, and, and as I started doing that, I realized, you know what, I'm just one guy, and, and this is all going to sound very homogeneous if I write the, an analysis for each story, but I know a lot of experts in the industry, um, from chief data officers to consultants to other kinds of thought leaders, and so what I did was kind of conscript <laughs> my, my industry friends each to take a story and do an analysis on it. So I think that's one of the really cool parts of the book is the, are those contributions by dozens and dozens and dozens of, of, of uh, top practitioners and, and thought leaders in the, in the world. Yeah, I just I love the the tie into real value, like real metrics, real dollars. And there's not enough of that in our space. There's a lot of projection. Oh, we will do this. These Mm -hmm. stories are things that happened that had measurable results. And like looking Mm -hmm. back and seeing, yes, these were successful. Now, I'm not suggesting people out there maybe study the book to learn how you might create that value proposition for the thing you want to do too. But this might work. Like if you can see, Hey, this is what actually happened and you need to sell some senior executives on, Hey, maybe we should make an investment that looks somewhat similar. I think that's a really decent approach. If you're out there trying to figure out how do we take these 
ideas we have and turn them into something that's real and something that will be yeah. invested in, I think these stories could really help a lot of us out there trying to put those pieces together. You know, a lot of the stories did come from a place of frustration, both while I was a gardener and, and afterward as I read, you know, vendor, you know, marketing material. And the vast majority of vendor marketing material says, you know, we generated queries faster or we grew the number of users or, you know, crap like that. And that's not a value proposition that yeah. that one should boast about, I don't think. You know, you should be boasting about how you transformed a customer's business, right? How you helped them make more money, save more money, reduce risk, uh, grow market share, you know, real things like that that investors actually care about. Um, but um, so too many vendors and, and, um, and news stories, you know, just talk about generating faster queries or stuff like that. So um, I, I wanted to stay away from, from that for sure. Yeah, it, it just it makes me think like as data people, we're, we're kind of merchants mm -hmm. of truth. Like we didn't invent the truth. We're just trying to deliver right. the truth to people who can use that <laughs> to do something better. It's not about yeah. our delivery services. It's about the truth. Right. It's about what what connection we're helping to make. And if we make it all about yeah. the connection, then we lose the polar ends. And, right. and that's what I like. This book really ties that all together. Thank you. Yeah, you, there's a lot of stories in there, right? And so um, you mentioned the indexing and the hashtags. So mm -hmm. something else I wanted to do to make it that much more approachable and, and usable as a reference book was to tag the stories. So each mm -hmm. story is tagged with a, a half dozen or a dozen hashtags on geography, industry, type of solution, type of data um, used. And then uh, each story also includes, and I'll, I'll give you a quick quick look at that, is uh, also includes um, what, what I call a value compass. And so the value compass, you can see that, is an indication of what kinds of uh, value propositions or benefits were achieved by each story, whether it was a, a customer experience metric or, or a financial metric like growth or, or improved profit or a mark, market share or reducing risk or uh, improving safety, you know, things like that. So. So many stories are tagged multiple ways uh, and have multiple value propositions uh, in addition to just a financial proposition. So um, it allows uh, a reader to say, hey, I'm interested in stories about customer data that were used to help companies grow you know, revenue. And so you can kind of zero in on, on those. And I really do encourage um, readers to, to not just focus on stories in their own industry. You know, as a consultant and analyst at Gartner, uh, before that, I, I, I often get asked by, by clients, uh, you know, what are others in our industry doing? And my kind of flippant response to that is, why do you want to be in second place, right, or third place? Why not take ideas from other industries and apply them to your business and be the first one in your industry to do that? There's some great examples in the book of, of organizations doing just that. That's a good point. I've seen plenty of industries that the entire industry does something terribly wrong. Like they just nobody in the industry gets it. So if you look outside the industry, maybe you'll you'll be able to figure out something new. And so like sure. so audience, I need to talk to you all for a second because I recognize that so far this episode has sounded a bit like an infomercial for Doug's book and quite frankly I like the book enough that I want to make sure that you understand why I'm excited about it and why I think it's it's great. But in the interest of trying to be semi-impartial, which I'm not trying to argue that I am, I, I do want to ask you some other questions outside of the book as being perfect and great. Because I know as an author myself, there's always some things that you wish you had 
maybe also added or did differently, or if you were going to go and redo that book again now, like what are the things that are in your mind today that you're like, oh, I wish I had, I had thought about that, or this may be some of the things that I didn't quite address yet in this book that may turn into something new someday. But so like, what are, what are the beyond data juice are you thinking about today? So in the book, one of the things that you'll notice is there's not a lot of how hmm. companies are keeping very close to best how they ran these projects, like who was involved, what did they spend, hmm. uh, challenges they had, things like that. And it's very hard to suss that out hmm. of, of, of companies and, and organizations. So, um, you know, going in and actually interviewing people for each of these stories, you know, I could have gone deeper. Uh, but that would have been a much larger book and maybe fewer examples. Uh, this is really meant to be a book that's inspiring people, not 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 a how-to book. Um, the, there are plenty of how-to books on how to run a data-related project or an analytics project or how to do data science or how to integrate data. That's not really what the focus of this was. But um, I, I think I, I would have loved to perhaps include maybe more research, like um, actually researched and found some common thread. I mean, I did find some common threads and I did write about that, but... Um, actually doing some, you know, some some real quantifiable research behind this, I think, would have been would have been interesting to to do. Um, but otherwise, I'm I'm pretty happy with it. I did write a, a pretty lengthy uh, introduction, which goes into some methods for monetizing data, for generating economic value from data, how to run workshops, how to uh, test the ideas for feasibility, how to look at other industries and. Um, for, for, and to tease apart those ideas and put them back together, what kind of things make a monetizable? Shut that up. What kinds of things make a, a monetizable? Um, what kinds of things make data monetizable? Um, and uh, how to look beyond the immediate, obvious users um, of, of data to explore your extended business ecosystem. So I do cover all of that in in the introduction. But um, you're asking me what's next. <laughs> <laughs> if you could talk about it. <laughs> well, um, so well, let me let me preface this first by saying, um, so this book was largely crowdsourced, right? Mm -hmm. So I gathered these stories and I had, obviously had some help with that. Uh, then I had these experts write the analysis uh, on them. And so kind of the reason for that was after I wrote um, um, Infonomics, uh, my wife told me that if I ever wrote another book, it would have to be titled How I Use Big Data to Find My Next Wife. Um, so um, for anybody who's ever written a book, you know what I'm talking about. You really have to go into a hole and, and miss family events and things like that, especially if you also have a day job. So I, I said to her, I said, what if I crowdsource this? And she's like, well, what, what does that mean? I said, well, I'm going to have other people write the book for me. <laughs> <laughs> she says, okay, so um, anyway, the next book that I'm considering, now um, you may know that I teach a class on mm -hmm. infonomics at the Uni University of Illinois uh, Geese Business School. So I've been teaching that for four years. Um, I think the last couple of years I had like 400 students in the, in the wow. class. So it's a really unique class where we go into, you know, what, is it, what does data as an asset actually mean to an organization? Um, even though it's not a balance sheet asset, how can organizations actually behave as if it is one? Um, and uh, uh, and measure its value and generate ideas and, and all that. So we, we, we talk about ownership and privacy and all sorts of things like that in the class. Now, one of my favorite assignments that I give the students is pick any economic model 
what whatever whatever it is, whatever you can think of. And most economic models, let's just say all economic models, are, are were originally intended for goods and services or labor, labor, right? And so I said, take that economic model or concept and try to apply it to data, mm -hmm. uh, as if it you know was for which it was never intended. Um, does the model hold? Does it break down? What can we learn from trying to apply that model? What can business leaders learn? What can data leaders learn from trying to apply that model? Models like, you know, uh, marginal utility and productivity curves and uh, pricing and elasticity and supply and demand. But they picked all sorts of really wild models. And so what I want to do next is compile these um, analyses uh, into a, into a book. So I'm working with the University of Illinois to try to publish through, through them. Um, so there'll be a lot of editing involved. But again, I want to produce a real, not not a, not a academic book, but something that's really practical. What kind of practical ideas can we learn by trying to apply these economic concepts to to data? So that's what's up next. That's awesome. I've I've dabbled with economics and data from time to time, and and I'm not a deep enough student to to do justice to that. But I will love to read that that book because it is so fascinating yeah, I mean, the way we, data works in economic models oh that would that would be so much fun it's truly amazing that very few of us have ever thought about how to apply economic models to, to data um in you know and we're in the midst of the information age and and no one's really no one's really done this people talk about dis, digital business this or that but not really take an economic model that was originally designed for goods and services or labor and apply it to data. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's, we've learned some really interesting things by, by doing that, the students and I. And, it, and it's important in so many ways beyond just the dollars and cents of like an, an actual economics, you know, um, application. I, I, even today I was having a conversation around the challenges we're facing in building a large scale big data type platform, because the more it gets used, the more data we create and the more we want to use that data and need to keep track of it. So what used to be a semi-manageable amount of data, maybe we have five different instances right. of updates. Now, all of a sudden we're like N number of of instances and all of a sudden we're, we're managing a hundred of the same thing mm -hmm. trying to make sense of that on top of everything else right. and so the understanding well, well, of that is really difficult for people it doesn't right it, right there are three of the char main characteristics of data that differentiate it from other kinds of assets people often talk about data as the new oil and i think we covered this on the mm -hmm. last episode but you know oil a drop of oil can only be used one way at a time it it, it can be it can't be used over and over again it, because once you use it, it creates energy or pollution or, and, and, and heat. Um, and, and when you use oil, it doesn't create more oil. Data is very different in that regard. So people who claim data is the new oil, uh, yes, data-driven businesses have supplanted oil-driven you know, businesses for the most part mm -hmm. at, at a macro level. But, but really, the economic differences or the characteristics of, of data are very different than oil. You can use the same data over and over again. It doesn't deplete. Mm -hmm. It may become less relevant over time, uh, but it doesn't deplete. You can use it multiple ways simultaneously, and we argue that you should if you want mm -hmm. to generate for full value from it, just as you described, and that when you use data, it generates more data. So that's something from, a, I guess, an economic standpoint or architectural standpoint, a lot of organizations don't realize that wherever you're generating, wherever you're using data, you probably have the ability to capture more data about wherever and whenever that data was used. Um, and you need to prepare for that as well. 
Yeah, I, 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 I'm glad you did that again. Like you, you talked through some of those because that's been one of my favorite things to hear you talk about for a long time because you do that very elegantly and, and i appreciate that because i'm i'm like we get more data and you 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 break it down much more methodically um so i want to ask you too so you know you've you know gone from that that research role you've done books and speaking for a long time but now you're back you're in the the true consulting space and in full disclosure i used to work for west monroe years ago i have a lot of friends over there still i think it's a great organization my path went into a different direction but full disclosure i think it's a great firm but i'm curious doug your perspective coming in you're an experienced person you've had a lot of um you know achievements along the way you're going into this growing and large now large consultancy doing this kind of work which is still broadly not as well understood as we'd like it to be can you tell me about some of the things that you've learned in doing that and in, in now that you've been with west monroe for a while um and and maybe some things that have been either challenging or different than you might have expected uh making that kind of yeah, change there's certainly an evangelical uh, aspect to it mm -hmm. and I, you know the the things that i talk about with clients in terms of generating more value from their data treating it as an economic asset, understanding its value, they'll get that, right? But at the end of the day, data is not a balance sheet asset. So what's the imperative to measure its value? Well, I think there's a lot of reasons to measure its value. Um, yeah, we're doing lots of reporting on our data and we're happy with that. And people are asking for reports and we're generating reports. And then I got to ask, is that really moving the needle on the business? Are you actually attaching value to the data or to the analytics that you're doing. And, and if not, then that, that's a problem. So there's a lot of conversations that tend to be mm, Socratic, I guess, in, in nature, right? Yeah, um, yeah. And, and, and evangelical as well that have to happen for uh, prospective clients or existing clients to, to really wrap their heads around and then actually act on the ideas behind the infonomics and, and so forth. Um, as far as a consulting firm goes, um, again, not to have another infomercial, but I've worked with plenty of you know, consulting firms uh, and West Monroe far and away in terms of its values, its culture, its the egalitarian nature where everybody's voice matters, uh, the level of cooperation and collaboration among among clients and the and the uh, and how thrilled our clients are with our, our consultants uh, is beyond anything I've ever ever experienced. So really, really happy to be here, very lucky to, to be here as well. And, and lucky that they kind of you know, let me do my thing and, and encourage me to do so, to help build the brand and, and the awareness um, that, that, that I do. So so part of my role is consulting, part of my role is still mm -hmm. doing that that speaking and writing and um, uh, which, which, you know, obviously does introduce people to West Monroe. And, and you bring up something that for those that aren't consultants out there, I think is a really important thing to understand is that consulting firms can be very Socratic, like in the truest definition of that, that word, it's a, it is a place of study. It is a place of trying to learn and understand things yeah. at a very deep level. And that may surprise people who have become disillusioned with consulting firms that are, you know, always trying to, to sell the next yeah. project or whatever. But having been on the inside at, at a firm like West Monroe, mm -hmm. it, it really is a place where the desire yeah. to do good and do well and help the clients be successful at what they need is really truly right. there. And, and and that's when that's working. And it's not great. just for our clients, but uh, not just for our clients, but for the community as well. Oh, completely. Yeah. Um, I've never been with a firm that that does as much for the community as, as West Monroe does. So 
that's really positive as well. Yeah. Um, and, and I should also mention, you know, the third part of my role is also as an innovation fellow is to innovate, mm -hmm. to introduce new services and um, and capabilities to the firm. So things like data monetization projects and data valuation and uh, what I call data diligence. So West Monroe. Um, help, helps uh, private equity firms with what's called technology diligence and understanding the tech stack of companies that they're considering acquiring or merging. Um, and, uh, and so part of what we do now is, is uh, do data diligence. We'll look at the, the data part of that corporate transaction as well to determine does the data have an issue? Does it, would it integrate well with the, between two companies? Are there quality issues with the data? Are there risk-related uh, issues like a, a lack of compliance? Um, and even the value of the data can help color the, um, the ultimate deal uh, as well. So those are things that we're starting to look at now and we're very unique in, in, in that regard. That's great. I've long said that I think transactions are missing an opportunity to understand the potential impact, risk, you know, liability of, of data assets. Yep. And so it's good to see that you guys have created a, a practice area around that. That's an, that's an area that I think is, yeah. is in desperate need of, of innovation. So I mean, I, I won't say who, but you know, I, I worked for another very large consultancy uh, about 10 years ago and I brought this idea to them because they do a, a fair amount of M&A work and they just kind of swatted me away and said, you know, it's not something we're interested in. I said, you gotta be kidding. Like we're in the midst of the information age and to not consider the value of a company's data as part of a corporate transaction is just irresponsible. Yeah, well, and to, to loop it back to like basic economic theories that if, if you know, any transaction by by its nature is, is the winner is the person who's most likely to have overbid. Right. And so the only way you actually do a transaction is through finding unique competitive advantage. And data could be mm -hmm. a huge place where an acquiring firm may have an ability to take action with that acquired firm's data that nobody else right. could. There's real potential competitive right. advantage there. You have to yeah. at least evaluate that. And so now the private equity firms are starting to bring us in in a post-close scenario. Now we've been helping with operations for years, but they're bringing us in a, in a post-close scenario now to advise on, okay, now that we've absorbed this, this company, how can we leverage their data better? Maybe even leverage it across the companies in the portfolio. Um, and so that's getting gotten re really interesting. Yeah, it, we're even running one uh, with one private equity firm, kind of a Shark Tank exercise mm -hmm. where we've invited each of the portcos to propose. We kind of train them on this, and then propose ideas for monetizing or generating you know, new value from streams from their data, and then pitching those to the uh, to the private equity firm. Um, to see which ideas get funded. That's cool. It, it, it's a good way to evaluate and some gamification. Never heard anybody. That's always a, a good way to get right. people engaged. And so that's Absolutely. so in from from your perspective, too. So so we're talking a, li a little bit about things that are relatively niche, the transactions and the, and the private equity and, and uh, data uh, diligences and stuff. And, that, and I, I find that super interesting. But I'm curious between, you know, your various hats that you continue to wear, are you seeing anything either you know, trends in the industry in terms of data leadership or, or data strategy or, or chief data officers um, that you find either surprising or, um, you know, potentially not where you would have thought it was or where you thought it, it should be? Like, are we on the right, maybe a simpler question, 
are we on the right track with things like chief data officers and the leadership of data in our organizations, or are we just not getting it collectively? It's been a slog, right? Yeah, introducing a new chief into the mix is, is never that easy, mm -hmm. right? Um, you know, I think the last chief that we introduced, maybe the CMO some years ago, um, maybe the HR executive, probably 1960s, dating back to when Dr. Gary Becker at University of Chicago invented the concept of human capital, um, actually treating humans from a organizational standpoint as a, as a real resource, right? And having the executive in, in, in charge of that. Um, so I've kind of taken those ideas into the infonomics world. Um, of course, human capital isn't a balance sheet asset because uh, you know slavery has been outlawed, so it doesn't qualify as a <laughs> as an asset. But um, one of the things I'd really like to see more of is is CDOs with a real seat at the table, mm -hmm. right? A lot of chief data officers still report to a CIO or a COO, um, but increasingly they are reporting up to the the CEO and ultimately to the to the board. Um, I, I, something I, I've been kind of an idea I've been toying with, and it's a bit bit pr provocative, is do we need a CIO anymore, right? If we have a chief technology officer and we have a chief data officer, we've really bifurcated the IT organization, which is something that I recommend. I think data and technology can and should be managed separately. Mm -hmm. There was a, a time when data and technology were, were tightly coupled. The database was baked into the, the product itself, but today we can separate the data and technology pretty well. And we definitely are doing that in an analytics standpoint. Mm -hmm. So I think managing those two resources or assets separately makes a lot of sense today. Now, if we do, we have a chief technology officer, we have a chief data officer. What, what, what does a CIO do? And I've actually recommended this to some companies and some organizations and some government organizations and retailers and others have actually, and pharmaceutical company, have actually disbanded the CIO role. I'm not saying it's for everybody, but perhaps it makes sense to, to say, listen, we just need a CDO and a CTO. Um, we don't really need a, a CIO anymore. So I know I've pissed off a lot of CIOs out there. So I apologize. <laughs> uh, Join the party. I, I, I've said some strong things about CIOs myself. And so, you know, I, so. I don't know. I, I can't disagree with you, first off. But I also think mm -hmm. sometimes I don't care about the labels so much as when I think about the specifics right. of organization, like I often say to, to conference groups or whatever, I'm like, the easiest thing I do is stand up at the front of the room and tell you how things should be like, that's fine. That's easy. There's no consequences to that. But when right. I get into an actual organization with real people, with real organizational structures, with real, real business units and all that, all of the, the rules go out the window to deal with the specifics right. of that situation. Sometimes exceptions need to be made. So I'm with you. It's like maybe the CIO doesn't work. But like if you have today a CIO reporting to a CFO reporting to another person who sits next to the CEO, like you've got other problems. Like I don't it does like yeah. we can we can move shells around all we want. But at the end of the day, data is important. And we need to find a way that the strategic actions of a business properly reflect the potential of data and that data is managed in accordance with that strategy. However, we do yeah. that. That's... We've, actually been, we've actually been running an ongoing study and, and found that, that companies with chief data officers are more likely to democratize their data, are more mm -hmm. likely to share data freely, are more likely to generate economic value from data. Um, and, and that companies with a, a true executive level CDO, one that's really has a seat at the table that isn't what we call a, a CDO light. Mm -hmm. um, that is one that is more kind of strategy oriented, doesn't really, hasn't really taken on the full responsibility for, for all data and um, 
in the organization. Um, but the, the real full full figured CDOs um, tend to perform. The organizations tend to perform a lot better than those with uh, even a CDO light, let alone uh, just a CIO in charge. So. Yeah. Um, it's a, there's a, a article that I published on that. I can share share with you. You can share with your, your readers. Um, and a presentation I did at last year's um, MIT Chief Data Officer Symposium. Yeah, we'll definitely uh, put that link in the show notes for for folks who want to check that out. Because that I think I think you're exactly right. And, and it, a CDO yeah. is important. And I think we're <clears throat> my perspective is that we're still struggling to figure out how it fits and and where to put it organizationally. I think part of it is because our, our businesses are siloed. They should be siloed because that's how we grow to large scale. They have specific functions. Data needs to cross over this and we're struggling to figure out how to make it do it. And again, the, the consulting, the, the accounting firms and the insurance industry haven't been much help. Mm -hmm. The accounting firms still fail to recognize data as a balance sheet asset, even though it clearly meets the criteria. Data is owned and controlled, exchangeable for cash, and generates what accountants call probable future economic benefits. That's the definition of an asset, according to GAAP and AICPA and FASB. But they, they fail to apply that to, to data for the most part. And then the insurance industry doesn't recognize data as property. So if you have some kind of claim and you've lost your data, you can't process that claim against your uh, PNC policy. So, um, you know, until, until these industries really get a jump on recognizing data as property or recognizing data as an asset, even the courts are confused on the matter, um, then it, it's going to be hard to compel organizations to really treat data as a legitimate asset. Listen, even though here we are in the midst of the, you know, the information age, maybe we're early in the information age, but, you know, data has, is a legitimate, I also claim it's a legitimate um, um, productivity factor. Right. So we have land, labor, capital and entrepreneurship as the classic uh, factors of, of production. Um, data has supplanted those in, in almost every industry. We see data supplanting inventory. Uh, we see data supplanting um, uh, personnel. We see data supplanting even entrepreneurship. Data is used to, to create and invent things. So and data certainly is a replacement for land. So um, I, I, I think it's just irresponsible for organizations to not have an executive level chief data officer, or whatever you want to call it, uh, who is ultimately accountable and responsible for managing the organization's data, but also ensuring that that data is optimally leveraged. Yeah, I think that that's some great thoughts. Doug, we're just about out of time. Do you have any other words of wisdom, anything else that you wanted to cover on the show that we haven't? We've been all over the place, but uh, yeah, this has been awesome to have you on again. You know, we've been talking a lot about organizations, their own data, right? Um, and uh, I think that many industries are, are awakening to the value of external data as well. Yet, here we are again, they have entire departments dedicated to procuring office supplies or other kinds of assets, but not a single person dedicated to procuring external data assets. Um, there are you know, 5,000 or more 10,000 data brokers out there, companies that sell lower licensed data. There are trillions of websites with data that can be harvested, data or content that can be harvested. There are uh, um, millions of, of, um, uh, of open data sets published by government organizations or, you know, around the world. Um, and so to not have anyone in the organization who is aware of, or who's responsible for being aware of what external data could be brought into the organization 
to, to generate value, particularly with, 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 when it's integrated with your own data. Again, I think that's irresponsible as well. Doug Laney, thank you for being on the show today. Thank, thank you so much. This has been fantastic. Thanks, Anthony. We'll see you soon. And thank you all for joining us today. As always, you'll find more information and links in the show notes. Go to dataleadershiplessons.com to subscribe and check out past episodes and accelerate your journey with training at dataleadershiptraining.com. If you're enjoying Data Leadership Lessons and are interested in electric vehicles, check out my new podcast at electricdrives.us. We will give you the information you need to transition to an electric vehicle future. And as always, stay safe during these unusual times and go make an impact.